All right, welcome to the show. <clears throat> Excuse me. Welcome to today's episode. So I want to give a little bit, need to give a little bit of background information and context to set up today's episode. It's going to be a video review and response of a small section of a larger video. So it's from Sean McDowell's YouTube channel. And the clip or the section that I'm going to be going over is about eight or nine minutes long. It's part of a 50-minute episode. And the title of the episode is How Evangelicals Shun Others. And it's a book review. So I'll just read the description of it, give a little bit more context and background information, and then we'll get into dissecting the contents of the video. So here's what is written in the description. Has evangelicalism increasingly othered certain groups such as liberals, blacks, gays, feminists, and progressives? Is the evangelical movement in crisis and in need of transforming? In this episode, Sean and Scott discuss a recent book by Isaac Sharp called The Other Evangelicals. They discuss Sharp's thesis about the exclusive nature of evangelicalism and the battle over the definition of evangelical. I'm not particularly interested in evaluating Sharp, his book, his thesis, the definition of evangelical, or anything along those lines. Sharp, by the evidence of the entirety of this episode is a progressive who is attempting to make larger the Christian tent, that term, make the tent larger, that comes up a number of times in this episode. And, and the idea here is that people like liberals, blacks, gays, feminists, and other kinds of progressives have felt othered by people within evangelical Christianity due to, for most of these individuals, their unbiblical and anti-God positions. Obviously, blacks don't automatically fall into being anti-biblical and anti-God, but liberals, gays, feminists, and other progressives do. And so this guy, Isaac Sharp, is apparently calling into question why evangelicals have othered these people. Well, the reason why evangelicals don't want them in their tent is because they're importing falsehoods into Christianity. They're attempting to syncretize Christianity with unbiblical ideologies. But anyways, that's not even what I'm focused on with this video. The point of this video is the last eight or nine minutes of this is when Sean and Scott discuss the issue of homosexuality. And again, it's not even about really what this guy Isaac has to say in his book. It, ha it really has to do with responding to what Sean and Scott have to say about the topic of homosexuality and that from within the context of Sharp's book. So let's go ahead and get set up here for the video and let's get started. To the last one where he talks about the LGBTQ conversation that's going on here. And he goes back longer than I thought he would. He's in kind of the 60s, 70s and 80s before my memory. And he kind of paints a picture that this is a excluded group that's kept out from people who saw themselves as being evangelical. And the Christian response was, nope, Bible doesn't teach that, change them. That's the sure. only options. And in, in some ways, I think, yeah, there was a lot of mistakes in the evangelical response to the... It'd be really nice if he elucidated on what those mistakes were, but he doesn't. Perhaps this... 
Isaac guy in the book does, but neither Sean nor Scott give any examples of how evangelicals shunned homosexuals, of the poor ways in which they were treated. I grew up hearing that all my life, that Christians treated gays so poorly. And now looking back on that, I'm thinking I was gaslit growing up because I don't know how exactly Christians historically have mistreated homosexuals. Is the perception that Christians have historically mistreated homosexuals there because Christians have rightfully for so many years said, no, that's sinful behavior and there is no syncretism between Christianity and homosexual behavior. The two things are irreconcilable. They're contradictions. They are inconsistent with one another. You cannot have, you cannot be unrepentantly a homosexual, whether that's homosexual activities or unchecked homosexual desires, and be a Christian. That would be like being an adulterer, an unrepentant adulterer, or somebody who unrepentantly has adulterous thoughts and then also saying you're a Christian. The two can't mesh. So I've heard that argument a lot, that Christianity got things wrong. And I think that Sean just mentioned this notion of, well, we got to change them. Well, they do need to change. If by change you mean they need to repent and they need to stop committing the sin of homosexuality, whether it's physical or whether it's in their hearts, then they do need to change. If you mean they need to become heterosexual, I mean, it's possible for them to remain single and celibate and to completely and utterly reject homosexuality. Perhaps that's the life God has called them to, but <clears throat> this idea that they need to change, they do need to change. Just like an unrepentant thief needs to change, an unrepentant murderer needs to change, an unrepentant adulterer needs to change, an unrepentant fornicator needs to change, all unrepentant sinners need to change. And just because it's not fashionable to tell homosexuals they need to change as well. Who cares if it's not fashionable? You know, Chesterton once said that fallacies don't cease being fallacies just because they become fashions. Well, sins don't cease becoming sins just because they become fashions. Question of LGBTQ relationships. And he walks through the story with Exodus and gives some fair criticism and ways that we should assess this. Again, it'd be nice to know the fair criticism. I mean, nice to have some examples of what that is. I'll be fair to Sean and Scott. They're doing a general book review. That's fine. But some of, some of these examples would actually be helpful so we could understand what is meant by these allegedly fair criticisms of evangelicalism. But they never give us any, so we don't know. I think when it's all said and done, at the heart of the issue for this one, though, is the Bible and what it means to be, you know, if one of the core... Uh, evangelical ideas is authority of the Bible, you're not going to get there to affirming same-sex relationships. And even some of the most... Amen to that. Sean is spot on. This is not all bad. Sean and Scott don't completely fumble over themselves in this. And he's completely correct. You're not going to get there from the Bible. There, there's no reconciliation between biblical Christianity and homosexual behavior and homosexual desires. You're, just, you're not going to get there. Spot on. Good job, Sean. Outspoken, or actually I would say some people who are affirming, these are experts who say, you know what, you can't get there through the Bible. You're going to have to go, people like William yeah, Loder, an expert science. in ancient culture, go, you have to get there another way. So I basically set the authority of the Bible aside. That's what so that's helpful to understand. So what he's saying is there are people who are experts on... 
because there there are non-christian experts on ancient cultures and even on the bible like the old testament and things like that and even they say people who would affirm homosexuality openly and completely they would say listen if you want to affirm this you're not going to get there from the scriptures so these individuals understandably set aside the scriptures now it would be far better if they would repent and become christians but of course if they want to be open homosexuals if they see nothing wrong with homosexuality then they're not going to affirm the bible of course they're not they're going to recognize the truth which is yeah the bible is not your friend if you are a homosexual who wants to live out loud and proud the bible's not going to affirm that so you're going to need to find some other means of affirming it you're not going to get there from the scriptures that's what i think the honest pagans are refreshing heart of the issue for this is and while there are people who say hey we're evangelicals we believe in the authority of the bible we can dot all the i's and cross all the t's of evangelicalism i think there's too many people saying the arguments are not there it's not supported by scripture this is not just a secondary issue we can agree to disagree on because of the clarity of scripture amen it's not a secondary issue sexuality is a primary issue and the bible is very clear about fornication adultery homosexuality and other types of sexual sins so again sean is right that's how i see it it's not a power play it's a faithfulness to scripture play right so i guess the idea of a power play would be and, and i'm assuming that isaac makes it in his book but a general progressive power play is that oh Christians are using the scriptures to keep out homosexuals because they want to maintain some sort of white, hetero, male hegemony or something, some sort of neo-Marxist speak like that. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a power play in terms of a Marxist framework. It's the authority of the scriptures. The Bible declares homosexuality to be a sin the thoughts, the behaviors, the actions of it, all of it is sinful. So it's no, it's not a it's not a power play to keep out homosexuals to make sure that they don't get power from again from a neo-marxist framework. It's this is a sin. But at the same time, I'll go ahead and say yes, I do not want homosexuals in power in churches. That's going to destroy and ruin churches if that happens. Two I think two comments on this. One is I think Ephesians 5, the way it links the marriage between a husband and wife with the relationship between Christ and the church, mm. makes it something different than a peripheral issue. I think it, I think it really it does make it really important. But the, my critique of this chapter, I'm I'm really surprised at this because I you know there's no mention of people like Wesley Hill. That's a good example, by the way. Christ in the church, that that's helpful. Scott doesn't say a whole lot that I agree with or that I think is helpful. That's one of the few things that he says is helpful. Mm. Uh, no, really, just uh, maybe a sentence or two, but just in passing about the gay Christians who have chosen to be celibate. There's no such thing as a gay Christian. Just like there's... Maybe I should let him finish because he's going to talk about gay Christians who are celibate. No, I'm just going to go ahead and say it now. There's no such thing as a gay Christian who's celibate. 
Just like there's no such thing as an adulterer Christian who's celibate or a thieving Christian who's stopped thieving or a lying Christian who stopped lying or a gossiping. They're, they're no longer defined by their sins. You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 talks about sins that will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven, unrepentant sins. And he says to the Corinthians after giving that sin list, you were, you used to be those people. You used to be identified by your sin, but now you are no longer identified by your sin. So no, there's no such thing as a gay Christian, just like there's no such thing as an adulterer Christian or a murderer Christian or a racist Christian. Could you imagine if somebody tried to say, yeah, you know, I'm a racist Christian. I, I struggle with the sin of racism, but, you know, I'm, I'm celibate. Why would you? That would never get a pass. <laughs> that would never get a pass in modern evangelicalism. So why are we giving it a pass to homosexuals? There's no such thing as a gay Christian. It doesn't exist. And don't even say a gay Christian who's celibate. Stop identifying them by their sin. Just a celibate Christian, sure, that's fine. But stop identifying them by their sin. That's the root of many of the problems surrounding homosexuality and Christianity. Out of faithfulness to Christ. Mm. That's a much bigger category, I think, than he's giving credit for. Um, and I think there's, there is plenty of room under the, the evangelical tent for people who, are, who are, are same-sex attracted mm. and, who have, and who have given up trying to change that. That's an important caveat mm. in there. But who, out of faithfulness to Christ, have chosen to live a celibate life. Living a celibate life out of faithfulness to Christ is a good thing, but the other thing that he said, making a room in the Christian tent for homosexual Christians who have chosen this, I mean, <clears throat> you would let me, you know, let me rewind it and let me allow him to say that again to make sure I get what he said correct here, and then I'll give my comment. Plenty of room under the the evangelical tent for people who are, who are are same sex attracted. Mm. And who have and who have given up trying to change that? Okay, so same same sex attracted. They have they're same sex attracted. and They've give up trying to change that. <clears throat> Let's just recast it with a different sin. Would he say that if, you know, there's plenty of room in the evangelical tent for people who want to commit adultery, who are sexually attracted to people they are not married to, but they have and they and they've stopped trying to change that. There's room in the evangelical tent for thieves who desire to steal from others, and they've stopped trying to change that. There's room in the evangelical tent for racists who have, who have, raci who have racial hatred for other racial and ethnic groups, and they've stopped trying to change that. Would you say that about any other sin? No, you wouldn't. So stop saying it about homosexuality. This is not helpful. This is damaging. These... It encourages people to continue to identify with their sin, and quite frankly, it encourages them to continue to sin because they just say, well, I, got, I mean, I guess I have these desires. I just give up on them. No, you need to mortify those desires. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you will become heterosexual. So, for instance, a gay man, that doesn't necessarily mean if he mortifies his homosexual desires. It actually is possible for him to no longer have homosexual desires, just like it's possible for a thief to no longer desire to, to steal or for an adulterer to no longer desire having sex with somebody who's not their spouse. Because guess what? Those desires are sinful. A homosexual 
who still desires, has homosexual desires, has sinful desires. It's not enough for him to not act on those sinful desires. The Bible declares those desires even have to be put to death because James says those sinful desires bring forth actual sin and that gives birth to death. I mean, Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you even lust in your heart after a woman, you've committed adultery. And that applies to any sort of sin that takes place in the heart. So no, this framing that Scott gives is not helpful. It's subtle, but it's dangerous and it's unbiblical. That's an important caveat Mm -hmm. in there but who out of faithfulness to Christ... I get what he's trying to say, but he says it poorly. What he should be saying is Christians who are daily putting their homosexual desires to death because for a Christian who struggles with homosexual desires, if they are repentant and if they are striving to put those desires to death on a daily basis, there will be times, there will be days, hours, minutes where they're tempted to sin in a homosexual way, but then, you know, just offer a prayer of repentance in your heart to God, say, nope, that was wrong, shouldn't have thought that thought, and then move on in repentance, in victory in Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's what needs to be done. Not, oh, well, I'm a homosexual and I've just given up trying to be straight. No, you can, it's not about becoming, it's not about being a heterosexual necessarily, it's about putting to death homosexual desires have chosen to live a celibate life. And, you know, the, the, sometimes the counter-argument to that is, well, that, you know, that's just so unusual, it's abnormal, it's not human. But then if, that, if you make that counter-argument, you are, you are vulnerable to the example of Jesus mm. coming back at you in return. Mm. Because if the ideal man was someone who lived a celibate life... <laughs> You know, then I, I, exactly. Except that Jesus didn't struggle with homosexual desires. Except that Jesus wasn't a gay man attempting to mortify his sin. What a utterly ridiculous comparison to make. Jesus didn't have homosexual desires. He didn't struggle with homosexual desires. That was never an issue for him. To compare homosexual men who have just given up trying to change their desires, but they're remaining celibate, to comparing that to Jesus Christ? Okay, look, homosexual desires are unnatural. It is abnormal and non-human to have—I wouldn't say say non-human. I would say it is abnormal to have those those desires, and it is unusual— for human beings to remain celibate. That is a rare gift. That is a rare exception. It is not the rule. And to attempt to say that men with or women with homosexual desires are like Christ, that is not remotely true. Jesus didn't struggle with homosexual desires. He was a sinless, perfect God-man who was the Lord, who is the Lord and Savior of his elect. Not a homosexual man attempting to remain celibate. Not a homosexual man who has just given up on trying to not be gay, trying not to have gay thoughts anymore, or trying to be a heterosexual. Jesus wasn't trying to be a heterosexual. He came to earth to fulfill the will of his Father and out of a love for his elect, not because... He was like a gay man struggling with homosexual desires. 
you nitwit. Right. Then I don't know what you do with that if you're trying to, mm. to outline a affirming position. And I think we, I think we've been correct to distinguish between the, the attraction and the behavior. Mm. And you have not been correct. You're in serious error. The behavior that Scripture has has its message about, not so much the attraction. And I think for most— I Would you say that about any other sin? The Bible's more concerned with the behavior of adultery, not the attract, not you being attracted to women who aren't your spouse. The Bible's more concerned about the behavior of lying, not the fact that you desire lying. The Bible's more concerned... Again, I'm just going to take it back to the racist example. The Bible's concerned about the behavior of racism, not your desire... Not your racist desires that you're or the your racist feelings that you're harboring in your heart it doesn't work in any other way it doesn't work with homosexuality either it does not work with any other sin and it proves the fallacy that's being perpetrated here i think and i would agree that most people's same-sex attraction is not chosen uh, it's not something that they you know that they've even chosen to nurture in many cases uh, and the, the, that, in, as a result of that, I don't think that's something they can be more held morally culpable for. Of course, they can be held morally culpable for their attraction. They need to put it, they need to mortify and put it to death. Just like an adulterer would be held morally culpable for their attraction to somebody who is not their spouse. It's the same thing. The attraction does matter. It's a sinful desire. Stop coding it in cute words. It's not an attraction. It's a sinful desire. Okay, when I struggled with pornography and I desired porn, okay, I didn't act out the behavior, but any time the desire to lust after another woman occurs, whether I actually look at porn or not, that's a sinful desire that I need to mortify and that I need to repent of. If I don't, I am, if I just say, oh, that's okay, that's no big deal, I am asking to become a porn addict again. This is terrible insight. But the behavior that's good. is a No, Sean, it's not. Choice. And, that, and the behavior includes lust also and acting out on it because those are both decisions. No, no, the lust is not just a behavior. The, the lust is... The desire and the attraction. Quit trying to separate those two things. Stop trying to separate those two things. I, I have a couple comments at the end here I thought was yeah. interesting. Is he cites two people who have been outspoken in the, the, quote, gay Christian kind of category. One, Justin Lee, who wrote a book, Torn. He started the Gay Christian Network. And it kind of describes the book that he wrote. gay Christian network. I'm going to start the racist Christian network. After that, I'm going to start the adulterers Christian network, and then the thieves Christian network, the liars Christian network, and the gossips Christian network. Help me, help me think of some other sins, people. Other, other networks we can start named after sins and Christianity. <laughs> Let's start all this. This is stupid. This is so dumb. <laughs> I forgot that was in there. I really have already listened to this before. <laughs> oh, this is getting too serious anyway. I'm glad he just injected some levity. The gay Christian network. 
Uh, uh, for real though, I want to start the I Hate Blacks Christian Network. Let's see how that one goes. <laughs> oh man. And then a prominent Christian conservative scholar just wrote a scathing critique. Right. Good. Well, for one, ideas really matter. So I see no problem with writing a critique of ideas. He yeah. kind of caches it like it's a power play a little bit, but there's a lot at stake. He should. Second, we at Biola had Justin on campus to have a conversation with Wesley Hill. I was there saying, we're not afraid of these ideas. Make your case. Let's learn how to love our neighbors, but we're going to go back to Scripture. And just to, so. be, cl to be clear, Justin affirms you know, same-sex sexual activity he does. as well as the same-sex attraction. He does, which yes. Make, which puts him in a different category. Uh, eh, kind of, but not really. But I get what you're saying. Ag agreed, yes. He is in a unique category. Well, I hope when you invited this clown and his gay Christian network onto your campus, I mean, it's a college campus, so sure, challenge your students, but I mean, let's stop acting like college students are just ready to take on the world and all of the things that the world's going to throw at it. And by world, I mean the systems and institutions and principalities set up against the truth of God. Stop acting like they're all just completely ready for it. So I hope when you invite wretched pagans like Justin Lee to your campus that you aren't just, oh, thanks for coming, buddy. So glad you and your, your gayness are here to corrupt our students. No, I hope you had somebody with a Bible in their hand that thumped, metaphorically, Justin Lee on his head and demonstrated how awful, unbiblical, and gross his views are. But he was on campus. Mm -hmm. We weren't trying to cancel him. It's not a power play. Mm -hmm. Let's not have a all. conversation. Same he mentioned. Let's have a conversation. I'm so sick of that word, conversation. There's a legitimate use for it, but man, it's just been butchered. What does that even mean? We had a conversation with him. Does that mean you just let him corrupt the minds of your students at Biola? It's Matthew Vines, who wrote a book, God and the Gay Christian. Uh, that he, he cites some people here kind of as a power play to respond. God and the racist Christian. There's your book idea, folks. Go write it. To him, to silence him. And I don't think it's wrong for them to respond. I think what, how they responded is important because, again, a lot is at stake. But I also had a conversation with him. About 90 minutes mm -hmm. have thrown up on YouTube. It's gotten, I don't know, probably close to a couple hundred thousand views, meaning a lot of people saw this and are hungry for this kind of dialogue. But there's my point is there's a lot of evangelicals willing to say, let's have this conversation. We're not threatened by this. We're not trying to cancel you. But if you cannot make your argument from Scripture... We are not going to right. be com compelled by this. Now, I can hear some people saying, yeah, Sean, but your job is at Biola. I can tell you, I got to look myself in the mirror when I go to bed at night. And I've told my wife when I study these issues, I said, if there really was a position I didn't hold consistently with Biola, I would not teach there anymore. And that's that's a gut check we all have that's to right. do. So it's fair, it's fair for him to draw attention to the power play because they affect all of us. But I don't think that's the story as it comes. No, it's just a neo-Marxist ploy to make you feel bad. It's just a neo-Marxist ploy to make you feel bad for being a white, heterosexual, Christian male in a position of authority. That's all it is. Don't fall for it. That's dumb. Don't fall for the neo-Marxist. It's the power play. Don't fall for that garbage. If you stand on the truth of Scripture, you're not making a... Okay, you, maybe you are making a quote-unquote power play, 
but don't let neo-Marxists make you feel bad for standing on the truth of scripture. Okay, if that's a power play, then you know what? Let's make more power plays. I'm pro power play. If standing on the truth of scripture and not budging on it is a power play, I am the power play advocate. I'm a power play Christian. I guess if you can be a gay Christian, you can be a power play Christian. I'm a power play Christian. Let's make some more power plays. To LGBTQ, I think the argument has just not been made and can't be made from the scripture. Correct. And it will never be it. made. It will yeah, never be I, made. I, agreed. And it is, it is around hermeneutics and exegesis. And, you know, mm. Bill, Bill, you know, Bill Loder, the Australian New Testament scholar. Brilliant scholar. Brilliant. I mean, he... I mean, he fully acknowledges that what Paul taught was the traditional mm -hmm. view. He just thinks that Paul was wrong. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> wait, so both of you, Sean McDowell, Mr. Christian Apologist and uni Christian University Professor, and this Scott guy, I don't know if you're, I guess you're a university professor too. Let me get this straight. This guy who rejects what Paul says is a brilliant New Testament scholar. Apparently he's not that brilliant if he rejects the Apostle Paul. If he rejects the Apostle Paul, who wrote inspired scripture, I'm guessing he may not be a big fan of Christ either. Or maybe he's one of those evangelicals or I don't know is the guy even a Christian doesn't sound like it if he rejects Paul or maybe he's one of those guys that says you know I like Jesus but I'm not a big fan of Paul well if you don't like Paul you actually don't like Jesus because Paul preached Jesus I'm sorry why are you calling him a brilliant New Testament scholar if he rejects Paul that, that's not brilliance he may have done good work in the field but he's not brilliant it's not brilliant it's foolish to reject Paul about it and can mm -hmm. he can't so he can't hold it. Um, Good. And I think that's, he's, I mean, I commend him for being honest about it. I as, do as, too. You know, I will actually agree with that. I appreciate when pagans are honest. I appreciate when pagans are honest and they don't even bother masquerading as Christians. That is very helpful. Clarity. I like clarity. Clarity is, it's a thing of beauty. As, I appreciate you know, that. As opposed to what I would consider to be, you know, a myriad of exegetical gymnastics. Mm. That are done in order to justify. Well, of course they are. Like sexual yeah, you activity. have to do I, I hermeneutical agree. gymnastics. There's so, I mean, each one of these we could do an entire in-depth show on it. There's so much more I want to say. I would recommend this book to people who it's a 300-page book. It actually was a dissertation, but he's made it very readable. It's a critique from outside, at least the Biola Talbot, what you might call conservative mm -hmm. theological position. And sometimes reading those helps us see some of our own weaknesses. But just realize it's a longer book. In fact, in the in the opening, even David Gushy says this book might make you mad. And there were a couple of moments I was I have a better idea. Here's some better books to read. Read, I can't remember the exact titles, but Greg Bonson has an excellent book on homosexuality. Doug Wilson has multiple excellent books on homosexuality. Read guys like that. Read Bonson and Wilson and others who take the arguments and the trash of guys like, oh, what's Isaac's last name? I feel weird just calling him Isaac Sharp. Take, take advantage of guys like Wilson and Bonson who have interacted already with the garbage exegesis and the garbage biblical gymnastics in an attempt to say that homosexuality and Christianity are compatible and that we should have progressives in our 
evangelical tent. Instead of listening to that, why don't you listen to Wilson and Bonson and men like that who go after those ideas in the book, in their own books? That would be a much better book recommendation than to read Isaac Sharp's book. And now I'm not suggesting never interact with what your opposition has to say. That's a very good thing to do that. But you don't have to read crappy books in order to do that. I was like, ah, I don't know that I was bored. You know, mad might be overstating it. But if you want to read a book that's going to critique contemporary evangelicalism, raise some good questions to think about that's kind of academic, I would recommend it if that's what you're looking for. What would you say? I think so, I think so too. Okay, I'm done with it. They're just going to go on and talk about this guy's book and recommending that you read it. All right, so that is everything that I have for you for today. I hope that you found today's video helpful. These kinds of thoughts about homosexuality that I critiqued abound. They are all over the place. You're going to find them in many churches within the minds of evangelical thought leaders, and it's, just, it's all over the place. So be aware of them. Recognize the... Now, it, it, this isn't in your face. This isn't in your face with some of the guys that they mentioned, like uh, Justin... Oh, gosh, why did I just blank on his name? Justin Long, Justin Lee. Anyway, the, the Gay Christian Foundation guy, him and Matthew Vines. So Matthew Vines is another one. He's like, oh, yeah, you can totally you know, be, be a sodomite and have sex with... Uh, if you're a dude, have sex with other dudes, and you can be a Christian. That's you know, no big deal there. Some of it's loud and in your face, and some of it's subtle, like with these guys. And I don't think that Sean and Scott are attempting to be subversive. But Scott, especially with some of, the, some of the things that he said about affirming being different than behavior and about Jesus being like a, a gay man trying to suppress his gayness, that is unhelpful and is subversive, is unbiblical. So be on the lookout and don't compromise on biblical truth. Hold to what the Bible has to say about homosexuality and all these other sexual sins and, and perversions that our world, again, the systems, institutions, and principalities set up against God and his word that they're attempting to perpetuate. All right, so that's all for today. We will catch y'all, or I'll catch y'all next time. God bless.